So good to be with you as we've gathered together here today to worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're on this very special, unique Sunday where we're pausing to celebrate what God has done. We're reminding ourselves once again that the purpose of a facility like us is to facilitate ministry, not for ministry to facilitate itself to the facility. And so with that in mind, we've gone through now two phases, phase one, phase two, which equips us, empowers us now to be able to more effectively minister in a way in terms of the gathered, and then during the course of the week, scattered to bring honor and glory to God's name. Now, there were people of the Older Testament, the Israelites, who were given that particular responsibility And so what I'd like to do now on this Sunday is to have us turn in our Bibles to the Older Testament. And in Ezra, we will find in verse chapter 3, verse 8 down through verse 11, some extraordinary principles with regard to what I will call building construction that I think have direct bearing upon the way in which we go about in doing this work for God's glory. My grandfather owned a construction firm. He had seven sons, two daughters, and his daughter named Jeanette Ruth uh, recalls a particular story where he stood out on an extraordinarily large field. And as he looked out over the field, he turned to the family and said, that is where a church facility will be constructed. That's, that's where a hospital is going to be built. That's where a school is going to be built. And it all came to pass. Yet he passed away in his 40s. What he said on the Sunday by which the church facility was constructed, and it was a multi-phase approach as well, he said, today is a day for celebration, but tomorrow is a day for further construction. For after phase two will come phase three, and so it is for us. You've made your way to Ezra chapter three, where we're going to explore verse 8 down through verse 11 together. And here now, we will find these words. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Kadmiel with his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God. Along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. 
And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord. According to the directions of David, king of Israel, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And get this now. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And if you allow your eyes to do the walking, you get down to the end of verse 13, where we are told that the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is extraordinary. And so what we want to do now is to understand how facility facilitates ministry. The results in a congregation producing what I would call this morning the great shout that allows for extraordinary impact upon the culture near and far for the glory of God. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And so, Father, what we're going to do now is to explore this great shout together. Joining online as well, we pray that people will get a sense of what this is all about. What we want to do, Father, is to understand very thoroughly how facility is meant to facilitate ministry. This was no mere renovation. What phase two has been is a true restructuring so that the structures work with the strategy of reaching countless people for Jesus Christ. We've prayed your blessing over all aspects of phase two. We're asking that in a very distinct way now, in our corporate worship, now in this service as well as the preceding, We bring honor and glory to you and you alone. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. For we've come here, Father, to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. The news reporters had gathered around him It's not often this happens with a professor, but F. B. Morse, the inventor of the telegraph, was being interviewed. Professor Morse, when you were making your experiments, what did you do when you didn't necessarily know what to do next? And Mr. Morse, Professor Morse responded, I prayed. I sought God for guidance. 
I sought in light to be able to better understand my way. Someone raised their hand somewhat cynically and said, and did the light come? Professor Morris said, yes, and let me tell you that America and Europe, on account of the invention that now bears my name, an invention that, very frankly, I do not deserve attributed to my name, is having impact. I had made a valuable application of electricity, not because of anything in and of myself, but solely because of God, who meant it for humankind. Uh, it had to be revealed to someone. God in his sovereignty chose to reveal it to me. The telegraph was about to be put on display and used for the first time. And so the next question that was posed was, in your first message, what will it read? He said, stay tuned. And when the message went out, it was this, look what God hath wrought, quote, unquote. Or to put it in modern-day English, man, look what God's done. For you see, that's how people are meant to live. You look very carefully at the sovereign God's ways in this universe. You explore the gravitational force of nature, and you say, look what God has done. You look into the skies and you ponder astronomy and the lessons learned. Look what God has done. You go to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus died for your sins and died for my sins. And we say, look what God has done. To God be the glory. What we want to do is to look very carefully at the way in which these four verses give exclusive glory to God. These four verses, for those that are involved in construction, by the way, these four verses offer what I'm going to call this morning biblical construction principles that master plan strategists and others need to be able to adhere to and apply better equipped to be able to corporately pull people together to have high impact as you move from phase one to phase two and to, by God's grace, still to come, phase three. Now, the first comes out of verse eight and nine, and I'm going to phrase it like this. This you and I, as we follow biblical construction principles that honor our Lord, I want to begin by noting here the wise supervisors that God uses. The wise supervisors that God uses. I want you to spot with me now as the verses begin to unfold how the idea of supervisor or supervision get unpacked in these verses. Because when you and I begin to read this very carefully, what we find is this. In the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua. And by the way, if we're doing baby dedications, don't name the kids this, please. 
Okay, and if you do, John is going to do the dedication, not me. Onward. And Yeshua, the son of Josedach, and made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Now, that's going to appear again in just a few moments, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. What we need to do is to begin to unpack this. It is the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. People, the house of God has not yet been built. These are visionaries. It's as if they can already see the end product before it has even been constructed. That's what leadership is all about, you see. You take vision, you turn it into action. This is what the Master Plan Committee and all those involved with the construction process have been doing. They have taken vision and turned it into action. But if you notice further, well, you and I are told that it's in the second month. Why does that stand out? It was in the second month of a given year that Solomon began the construction of the first temple. You build off of the past. You honor the past. You learn from the past without living in the past. Wise leaders of homes, wise leaders of corporations, wise leaders of schools, wise leaders in government, and they understand such things. You turn vision into action. But furthermore, as these supervisors are now going to have to empower the people to do this work for God's glory, they're going to have to pull together the various workers and be able to say, your part fits into the big hole. Because supervisors understand how the part relates to the whole and how the whole defines the parts. That's now what's happening here. So now, what they are doing is they are involved in, in this construction. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was of the line of the Davidic kings. They would have looked up to him. They have respected where he was coming from and who he represented. These people had traveled 900 miles from the Babylonian areas where they had been held captive. And over the course of four months, make their way into Jerusalem. You would think they're tired by this point. But one thing is true of people who are in leadership. There are times when rest is simply a luxury you can't afford. Sometimes you got to work tired in order to do what needs to be done for God's glory. These people are tired. Zerubbabel's got to be weary. He's the leader. And furthermore, there's Yeshua. But they made a beginning. When you were doing a work for God, Never despise small beginnings. 
within the womb of Mary, in embryonic form, was the second member of the Trinity, and Jesus Christ, who would grow into manhood and then die for your sins and die for my sins. Never overlooks small beginnings, never underestimates small beginnings, never despise small beginnings. They're weary, they're beginning. You see it there in verse eight. But what I want you to notice, and this is a brilliant supervision, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and you're gonna notice this word repeatedly throughout the book of Ezra, if we were studying it together week by week, all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, there is a comprehensiveness about this movement, about this work. They're imparting vision, they're exhibiting worth, they're instilling wisdom in all that they're doing, and it's all because what they have done is for seven months prior to beginning construction, they have gathered their materials. If you do the chronological work, they took seven months to simply prepare for this special moment. Never underestimate, from a biblical standpoint, the necessary ingredients in effective preparation. God used the Older Testament year by year in preparation for the Messiah who was to become in the Gospel accounts. Stories told of Napoleon Bonaparte and his former landlady. It's been told in a lot of different settings. Where one day he was walking down the streets, now as the leader of the land, happened upon the former landlady. She didn't recognize him. So Bonaparte, we're told, biographer tells us, smile on his face asked her if she remembered a fellow by the name of Bonaparte who used to board at her home. <laughs> and she, she looked somewhat quizzical at first and then smiled and said, yeah, but all that I can remember about him was that he was always busy, always stayed by himself, always working at a desk. And Bonaparte, we're told, responded, had I used my time as you desired, I would not today be the commander of the army of France. What he understood was the relationship between preparation and productivity. Very thankful for all those who have invested time over the years in the preparatory process that leads to a celebratory moment today. For what we bear in mind here is that wise supervision understands the necessity, the wisdom, and yes, the perseverance involved in this whole area, you see, of supervision. So they pull this together, and you're working through this together with me. They've come to Jerusalem from captivity. You can never forget that, can you? Look where they've come from. What do they do? You've got to find a way to delegate effectively in leadership matters. You need to know what to retain 
and you need to know what to release, what to retain for you to take on, what to release for others to take on. These individuals supervise wisely because they delegate wisely, which has happened in our building process. And so you make your way up now to the fact that they are to supervise the work of the house and never underestimate what appears here at this point. They are supervising the house of the Lord. It stands out. And so they are thinking seriously now. Okay, Solomon did this. We've returned from captivity. But this is not for us. This is the house of the Lord. And the Hebrew word Yahweh, as we know, was used, for example, for Moses. We're at the burning bush. And he asked the question, who shall I say sent me? The response, tell them, I am sent you. And the definition of I am in one word in the Hebrew is Yahweh. So you pull that together now, and you see what we see is that the wise supervisors that God uses are being described here. And so Yeshua and his sons and his brothers were up to verse 9. And Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah. Notice how many times you see words like all, words like together. You see the connectedness of the people. For the second time now, you will find the emphasis being placed upon supervision. Together supervised the workmen in the house of God. Along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. What this requires then, biblically speaking, is high-level administrative executive skills being impactful in a way that pulls everybody else to the forefront to be able to do work for God's glory. It was said of John Wesley that he had a genius for government. And the genius of his ministry is still seen in churches around the world today. It's owed to his superb executive ability, his biographer tells us, powers of organization that made a difference for the glory of God. And I'm thankful for the way in which people rallied around and they utilized their gifts Tremendous organizational skills where we understand how the parts fit into the whole and how the whole defines the parts. Understand the now but also the not yet. Phase one connects with phase two, which connects to phase three. All of this coming together because you don't despise small beginnings and you utilize these things in a way that bring glory to God's name and in the process, inch with me out of verses 8 and 9 to second of all, verse 10. Because in verse 10, you and I are now told, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel, because not only have we noticed out of verses 8 and 9 the wise supervisors God uses, 
But second of all, we're noting the unified workers that God values. Now, pull together with me, with your Bible, you see at the end of verse 9, and that together they supervise the workmen in the house of God. And so what do the workmen do? In verse 10, you and I are informed that these builders laid the foundation of the temple. Foundation. Now, that's a very critical, very key word at this point. And it's very important that when you and I understand the role and the value of foundation, foundation is necessary for effective construction. Frank Lloyd Wright understood that. Years ago, he's given the impossible task in the eyes of a lot of people for building the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. No comparable construction job ever before done that way there, but with patience, preparation, and the harnessing of resources uh, laid plans for this immense building in this land of earthquakes, tremors. He re reviewed and assessed the situation and found that eight feet below the surface of the ground, I'm noting from his biography now, eight feet below the surface of the ground lay a 60-foot bed of soft mud. Why not float the structure on this, he said to himself. And in some way, to make it absorb the shock of an earthquake. So after four years of work, we are told, in constant ridicule, the most difficult building in the world was completed, and soon after, it was tested. <laughs> Life has a way of doing that to us. Because the worst earthquake in 52 years caused houses and buildings all around it to tumble and fall in ruins, the biographer tells us. But the Imperial Hotel stood. Why? Because its foundation allowed it to adjust to the tremors that earth produced. And now what this world does, it produces unending tremors. But we need to make certain, personally, that our foundation is upon Jesus Christ. And when we think about the way in which our, our wise master plan committee has worked and all those who have worked in tandem with them, what we have to understand is that what God is doing is he is working today to prepare us for the tomorrows of life, even when the tremors of life shake us. But notice that it reads, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple. What stands out to you at this point? What are you thinking as you read this at this point? They are building upon the very same setting where Abraham took Isaac up to that particular mount found in Genesis 22, to offer sacrifice to God, when all of a sudden a voice, a voice is heard. When Isaac poses the question, but where is, where is the sacrifice? God will provide a substitute. 
Abraham said, and God did in Jesus. In the sight. A thousand years later, Solomon's temple was constructed. The same site we're reading about in Ezra 3. The first temple. But in 586 BC, the Babylonians came along, destroyed the temple. So what do you do? You persevere. And so when they returned from exile, the Israelites did, Zerubbabel was involved in overseeing the construction of the second temple, what I will call phase two. It was further reconstructed under Herod, 63 through 70. It's where Jesus would enter into the temple and then die for your sins and mine. But what fascinates us is if you've been to Israel, and I'm always struck when I ponder that scene, first time I stood there looking at it, of course, there's that Dome of the Rock, AD 691. What to do? Well, what the Israelites say they need to do, we need a phase three. We need a third temple. Now, there is a movement afoot in Israel right now for that. As a matter of fact, there's a particular holiday, Tisha B'Av. It's on the ninth day of the Jewish calendar, the month of Av. It's the Jewish holiday that marks the destruction of the first and second temples, both of which were destroyed on exactly the same day, though in years widely spread apart, 586 B.C., 70 A.D. It's a time of mourning for the Jews, M-O-U-R, but for the wise thinker, they realize this is also the time for mourning for the Jews, M-O-R that after phase two comes phase three. And so Tisha B'Av gives opportunity for among the benedictions that are recited on this day for the 18th benediction, Onishma Vizra in the Jewish language, be pleased, Lord our God, with thy people Israel in their prayer, restore the worship of thy most holy sanctuary. And so, in 1948, the Jews regained statehood. June 7, 1967, Israeli occupation of the Temple Mount. March 2, 1998, a request went out in Israel for young babies to be trained for service in the Temple, the Third Temple. Production of the Temple implements and furnishings. And so, there is a movement on foot. It's a time of preparation today for a time of implementation tomorrow. Because if Solomon was phase one and Zerubbabel was phase two, upon Christ's return, there's phase three. Preparation leads to implementation. Vision leads to action. You pull all this together and you're awed by the biblical principles of construction that are, are being unpacked by Ezra in these verses here. 
because you've seen the wise supervisors God uses at eight and nine, you've pondered the unified workers God values in verse 10. But we're up to the third observation, that in the beginning of verse 11, I want you to know thoroughly the steadfast love that God exhibits. The steadfast love that God exhibits. What do you do at this point? After construction comes celebration. And so they sang responsively, praising God and giving thanks to the Lord. And what is it that they sang? I'm glad you asked. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And the Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed. Hesed appears again and again in the book of Ruth, for example, and in the Psalms, of course. But what grips my attention is that when they sang this song, they were singing the very same song that was being sung during the time period in which Solomon was erecting the first, the first temple. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, in verse 1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifices, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house, Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. It's not easy to sing this way. They did it on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, quote, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that's true for us and true for you at a very personal level even in whatever you're dealing with in family matters or individual matters. His steadfast love did not end yesterday. His steadfast love endures, even at your personal level, forever. So you're up to the final observation now. And out of all this, fourthly, what we discover is the joyous response that God deserves. What have we covered so far? The wise supervisors God uses in eight and nine. The unified workers God values in 10. The steadfast love God exhibits in 11. And you read, fourthly, of the joyous response that God deserves. As all of a sudden, it's as if the text leaps toward you with these words, and all, not some, notice how many times the word all is used, all the people shouted. I mean, they've been on the pavement, but they shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Why? Because it was completed? No. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I mean, it's just phase two. Still to come. Phase three, the temple still to come. And so resounding was this shout, so powerful the communication of this truth, that if you allow for your eyes to do the walking, 
At the end of verse 13, we're told that the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And when you are singing joyfully to the Lord, where there is a time of celebration, the impact is far-reaching as countless people are being mobilized to ponder the significance of the fact that God is sovereign and in that strategic setting, send Jesus to die for our sins. And you pull all that together. You're awed by what God has done. You're thankful for who God is. And then your mind goes back to what it was that Mr. Morse was asked with regard to the telegraph. And he would end by simply saying this, wait and see. And his first message that went out for countless people to ponder, look what God has done. And when you consider what God is doing in our midst, look what God has done. And we give all glory to him and to him alone. And we give him all praise. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you. Certainly we thank you, Father, for the extraordinarily wise supervisors who've been involved in this process. Externally, internally, and the unified work, because unified workers who sense that they're not in this for themselves, they're doing this for you. Out of this, what we're praying is that whether it be the commons, the restructuring of all that's here so that the strategic approach of ministry is such that the strategy and the structures now work in tandem with one another. May your steadfast love be communicated. Awana, Sunday mornings, youth group, kidsmen, on and on. May the result be such a joyous response, Father, that whether it be near or far, people are prone to say and must say, look what God has done. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.